0: You're listening to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast, where we dive into holistic nutrition, biomedical treatments, functional medicine, low toxicant living, and developmental strategies with a special focus on children with complex picky eating, developmental delays, and neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm your host, Shandy Lasky, integrative speech language pathologist pediatric feeding specialist, functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and epidemic cancers certified health coach. Together, we are changing the conversation around how we view, discuss, prevent, and treat these childhood epidemics. I am so honored to have your time and attention today. Thank you for joining me and for all of your support. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and should never be misconstrued as medical advice or a replacement for individualized care from your trusted providers. Now, without any further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to push play today and learn and listen with me. Welcome if you are new here and welcome back if you are a returning listener. How are you doing? (laughs) Just take a moment. Let's check in. Check in with yourself in case no one has asked you how you're doing today or if you haven't asked yourself today. I hope that you are doing really, really well. Thank you again for choosing to tune in to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast today. On this episode, as the title and description share, I'm going to be covering more of the most frequently asked questions about gluten-free, casein-free diets for children with complex picky eating, developmental delays, and neurodevelopmental disorders. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you're new to these topics of gluten-free, casein-free diets, holistic nutrition, and the importance of gut health for these demographics of children. I really encourage you to hit pause right now on this episode. Go back a few episodes to get that foundational knowledge that I've already laid down to really build on because that's what we're going to really be building on today with this episode. This episode is for parents and professionals who understand the basics of the gluten-free, casein-free diet, like where these proteins are found and why they create issues for some children, and now you're ready to learn more. In this episode, I'll be answering questions like, how do you know if they are or aren't getting all of the nutrients they need? I'll be answering the most commonly asked question about going dairy-free. What about calcium? Is this diet... A temporary change or a lifelong commitment how long should it take to see results and lastly I'll be offering some general guidelines and habits for parents to consider when adopting a gluten-free casein-free diet with their child and family and making that transition so just know that there may be some overlap between this episode and the previous two as I am pulling content from a pretty in-depth blog that I have on speakingofhealthandwellness.com titled Gluten-Free, Casein-Free Diets, Picky Eating, Autism, and Other Neurodevelopmental Disorders. What's the Connection? It's a blog that I wrote. Um, It's it's a deep dive. Lots of good resources. Lots of citations. Lots of clickable links, graphics, things like that. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot of information, and so what I am doing is chopping it up into bite-sized pieces, digestible pieces, to um, to bring it to you in a podcast format. So I will link that pod, or I'm sorry, that blog in the description below. But I do encourage that you listen to the previous two podcasts. While there might be some um, overlap, I am trying not to do too much overlap because, again, I'm really trying to build on the content. So, you ready? Let's get into it. First up, how do you know if they aren't getting all of the nutrients that they need? So, you can hypothesize through symptom observation, and this is the importance of working with a nutrition provider so that you can, I mean, because if you don't know what the symptoms of nutrient deficiencies are, certain different nutrient deficiencies, then how would you know, right? Um, but a lot of times through symptom observation, I'm able to kind of use that as an informal assessment, but there are various assessments, um, some more formal than others. So things like Informal assessments would be um, things like food journals versus something that's more formal would be like biomarker labs. Some are more credible than others, clearly, um, but still value in all of them. So yeah, some basic labs for biomarkers may be available for coverage through insurance with your child's pediatrician um, not necessarily for nutrient deficiencies, I mean some of them are, but um, in terms of like the gluten-free, casein-free diet, you know, we talked about like IgG, IgE markers, for example, um, some nutrient deficiencies like vitamin D, uh, serum, zinc, you know, things like that, those, those are available through your pediatricians, but sometimes um, you have to keep in mind that your child's pediatrician, um, most MDs are not in the conventional world. Most of them are not formally trained in nutrition, let alone holistic nutrition. Um, Oftentimes I hear and I experience this myself that all the labs are normal. The labs look great. And I think normal for them is that it falls within this range, but it's not really taking into account like is that range optimal for that person? Sometimes, not always, you know, it varies. I don't want to make blanket statements about MDs or anything like that. I'm not here to do that, but um, I think sometimes it's most, um, like, advantageous of you to go through a functional medicine doctor or some type of functional or holistic nutrition provider that can help get a more functional look at these labs sometimes that just isn't offered through traditional medicine which unfortunately um, sometimes those functional medicine labs are not covered through insurance so you're paying out of pocket for them Um, but there also are like direct to consumer labs that exist for uh, families to access as well so there's there's a lot of labs out there you guys um, but the most common nutrient deficiencies, like if it's especially in kiddos when they're developing, some of them you can tell and you can see. But let's let's dive in a little bit more about this, specifically related to the gluten-free, casein-free diet. So some nutrients can be informally measured at home, like zinc. Um, the zinc assay test, A-S-S-A-Y, is a popular at-home test that I often suggest to parents um, to try to see a baseline reading of where their ch- child might be at with zinc. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes, honestly, it's so obvious that, like, it's not always totally necessary. Um, but if, if you want to check for a baseline reading, you can do a zinc at- assay taste test at home. Which, I'm not going to dive deeper into that today, but you can find information about that online. Uh, uh, it's it's um, a pretty popular at-home test. And there is actually research that supports its use, and I've linked a couple studies on um, speakingofhealthandwellness.com and that blog that I mentioned that I'll link in the show notes. But what's interesting for kids with complex picky eating, which also overlaps with um, kids with developmental delays, neurodevelopmental disorders, special needs. You know, so, when I say complex picky eating, I know that sometimes I'm speaking to an audience of parents who that child may only just have complex picky eating going on, but oftentimes it's very overlapping. And like I've said, um, the approach is very, very similar. So you'll hear me kind of use these terms like over and over and over again, but it's because. It's a very similar starting approach. So that's why I'm, I'm covering it all here. But I find that this, these demographics of children, they, it's very common for them to be deficient in zinc and zinc, a zinc deficiency alters the sensory perception and experience of taste and smell which as you can imagine, if your brain is not receiving smell and taste and touch um, and sensory information appropriately, it may create negative experiences with meal times and um, with eating, which then can lead to food aversions and this self-limited, self-restricted eating, these complex picky eating habits. So yeah, I find this to be very common in the population of children that I'm serving uh, with and without neurodevelopmental disorders, the kids who are complex picky eaters. And interestingly, zinc deficiency has been observed in patients treated with opioid medications and um, zinc supplementation has actually been used to help break opioid addictions. Now, this is where I hope that you have listened to the uh, previous episodes because I go deeper into the opioid excess theory um, for these kiddos and how it creates this like addictive like drive and these strong intensive cravings. Well, if you think back to that, I just find this really, really fascinating given what we know about gluten and casein proteins, how they create these opioid responses in the body and these addictive cravings, often in the presence of children with simultaneous zinc deficiencies. So that connection biochemically is very, very, very interesting. And this is where I'm always saying, okay, maybe there's not like black and white research to like concretely support all of the things that I'm saying, but when you look at the research that exists as a collection and you use it to critically think and put the pieces together and you look at these overlapping biological, biochemical um, correlations and connections and commonalities, it just, like, all the pieces of the puzzle start coming together a little bit more. And I hope that that's, coming across for you too sometimes it's hard to get it from my brain and um onto paper and out into the world and especially like just audio voice recording I mean I've got an outline here but I'm kind of just going (laughs) you know what I mean so I hope that it's coming across in that way that's helping you connect these dots so yeah zinc common deficiency um if your child has sensory aversions with food, it's worth exploring. So, next, let's move on to calcium. What about calcium? Calcium is everyone's big question when you remove casein and dairy from the diet. Calcium is a really important macro mineral, but it's important to know that. You don't want to go just like mega dosing on calcium in isolation by itself just because your child is now dairy free. Honestly, we aren't really getting that much absorbable calcium from cow's milk, Like to be honest. And there are many non-dairy foods that contain calcium sources like sardines, broccoli, bok choy. Pumpkin seeds, etc. Pumpkin seeds actually um, have a high amount of zinc as well, so they're kind of a powerhouse for picky eaters. Calcium is a game of cofactors, as you will hear our fellow nutritional therapy practitioners say. Um, I'm a functional nutritional therapy practitioner certified by the Nutritional, Thera- nutritional Therapy Association. My mouth gets going too fast sometimes. The irony is that I'm also a speech language pathologist. (laughs) Um, But you'll often hear NTPs, nutritional therapy practitioners, say calcium is a game of cofactors because that's what has been drilled into us. Calcium absorption, assimilation, and utilization in the body depends and requires, it depends on and requires seven cofactors for proper absorption as outlined by the Nutritional Therapy Association. And I'm going to outline these for you here, but again, just know that these I'm pulling this directly from my curriculum. Um, I think it's critically important and worth noting, as this is one of the most common questions related to the use of gluten-free, casein-free diets, so I just want to make sure that we're like really hitting this. So, again, calcium requires seven other cofactors for proper absorption. So you don't want to just start taking calcium by itself in isolation in these huge amounts because you could throw off something else. So here are those seven cofactors that it depends on. Systemic pH, hormonal functioning, hydration, including your water intake and electrolyte balance, the balance of other minerals, vitamin D, fatty acids, which are um, needed to transport calcium into your cell. So if you don't have a proper fatty acid balance and you start taking mega doses of um, calcium, well now you've got all this calcium but it's not getting transported into the cells that it needs to be. And also lastly, Um, Last but not least, digestion. Because calcium is only absorbed in an optimally acidic environment. And it requires um, proper amounts of stomach acid in order for you to uptake it. And so, okay, let's go back to zinc. If you've got a zinc deficiency, you probably don't have um, a high enough like optimally acidic environment because your stomach acid requires adequate amounts of zinc in order for it to like be uh properly acidic and how it needs to be in order to break down the foods that you're eating so oftentimes you get into this like weird spiral with kiddos with complex picky eating because okay kiddos who don't want to eat meat for example Oftentimes, like, okay, because meat is a high um, source of zinc, food-based source of zinc, and they don't, they have this aversion to meats, so they're limiting themselves to the food sources of zinc, but then zinc deficiency exacerbates picky eating and creates um, sensory distortions in smell and taste and so it's like this uh vicious cycle that you kind of get into with nutrient deficiencies and picky eating and sensory and all these different things and so um so again like we're talking about calcium here but if you are zinc deficient and your stomach acid is not um like it's if it's not adequate and you you don't have an optimally acidic environment in order to uptake calcium, well then, you wouldn't start with calcium. You would want to start with zinc. You see what I'm saying? Or you would want to start with whatever you need to do to put digestion into place um, to properly absorb calcium. So, okay, to just like simplify it. Most individuals are taking in enough calcium through their diet. But the question is, Are they properly absorbing it? And if not, why? If they are not, do they have the required cofactors to properly assimilate calcium? Because that really needs to be explored in addition to supplementation as appropriate and when appropriate. What I usually suggest is a high quality, food-based multivitamin for a few months to give a general overall boost through initial diet transition and then retest and see if you did a baseline test. We want to be sure that we're using methylated vitamin forms and there aren't any fillers or artificial colors or flavors or dyes or these things that I would have already talked about in the holistic Nutrition and bioindividuality episode three. I talk about it in terms of diet, but a lot of these sneaky ingredients make their way into the supplements um, as well. And so you just want to be watching for that. There is a study that I have previously mentioned. Um, it's a 2018 study by Dr. James Adams and his team. And um, they looked at the gluten-free, casein-free, soy-free diet, a healthy version of this diet, which they outlined and I outlined in previous episodes and in that blog that I mentioned. So I'm not going to go too far into it right now. But they, um, they used not only the diet, but a supplementation protocol as well. And the multivitamin that they used, is um, the Autism Nutrition Research Center Essentials Plus Powder, which is a great option, and now we know that it's research-based. After that study was conducted, um, they reformulated it and they improved the supplement based on their findings, actually. Um, And just to note Dr. James Adams actually helped formulate that. It's from uh, like his research um, organization or lab, I guess you'd call it out of Arizona State University. And he does not receive monetary imber- reimbursement from the sales of the supplement, and either do I. But you can find it. It is linked in that blog that is linked in my show notes. If you are needing more guidance and reassurance on calcium, ask your provider about lab testing and if supplementing with calcium in isolation is necessary and which forms they would recommend. If isolated calcium supplementation is needed, citrate or um, malate calcium forms seem to be the most widely tolerated and recommended among this population of children from what I have gathered but just be aware that some calcium citrate supplements are GMO corn derived and again a lot of supplements have these like sneaky ingredients that I don't really love giving to these children so I'm very 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 picky about any sort of supplementation that I ever recommend Um, and I try very hard to be very food focused first whenever possible to get those nutrients from a food source, um, and if, you know, I, I think that it's possible if, if you resonate with that, it is, there are also some, um, really good, clean, child-safe herbal products that are, um, that would be good sources of calcium as well, that would be plant-derived, but when you're looking for, um, herbal tinctures for kiddos you just want to make sure that well especially for these kiddos I don't use any of the alcohol based ones now granted I'm not an herbalist so I hope I'm not like frustrating people with that I know that there are maybe mixed opinions but I just find for these kiddos they're just so highly sensitive that I prefer an herbal tincture that has a base of glycerin rather than alcohol, which again, I think I mentioned this, I mentioned this in my last um, episode, but I really like the line by Organic Olivia, which I have linked on my products tab. And speaking of health and wellness, I don't think she has any specifically that are targeting um, calcium in isolation specifically. I know that she doesn't, but there are some that exist. The herb nettle um, for example, is high and rich in calcium and can be used with kiddos. Um, but you know, again, like my intro says, this is not medical advice. This is, um, I'm just sharing some thoughts because I don't love, uh, suggesting that very little kiddos who are real sensitive beings be on all sorts of like supplements, especially synthetically derived, created supplements. And so again, I try to be very food first focused whenever possible. Can we get this from a food or an herb or some type of naturally derived source um, where it will be the most bioavailable for the body to absorb? So those are my thoughts on calcium. Just very briefly, um, you know, speak with a provider, of course, but yeah, there are lots of food sources of calcium that you can look up and, um, you know, be mindful that as you're introducing new foods, that some of the new foods you're introducing are high in calcium. So another question, is this diet change temporary or a lifelong commitment? Well, it's really hard to say for sure. Um, that depends on your child the individual and we're really starting in terms of autism remember because we a lot of this research has been done mostly on the autism community and we're really just now starting to see that first major wave of adults with autism come through today the late 80s is and early 90s is when we started to see these surges and so if you think about the age and the time range, yeah, right now is the first major wave. Many of them aren't currently on and or were not on specialized diets growing up and because of funding allocations for research, we don't have a lot of actual data to answer this question specifically. To children who are on the spectrum and have other neurodevelopmental disorders, my guess, though, and from what I've what I've seen across the interwebs, um, is that for some it may be temporary, but for most it's likely going to be something they follow for years, possibly lifelong. Um, at least gluten, I think some people are able to get away with dairy and casein. A little bit more than they are gluten gluten seems to be a bit more um, of an offender and as I shared in previous episode gluten takes longer to leave the, the antibodies the response to gluten take longer to settle down and leave than dairy so for dairy antibodies it's about three to four weeks for gluten antibodies it's about four to six months and so my guess, yeah, is that it it could be temporary for some, but for most, like, I would be kind of surprised if they were able to consume gluten every day, um, at least in the the, like, standard American diet amounts. You know what I mean? Like, maybe it is possible that some of these individuals could... Again, depending on the individual because I'm talking about a broad range of children here from complex picky eating to neurodevelopmental disorders, special needs, developmental delays. So I'm talking about a wide range of children here. For some of these children, if they, um, you know, properly repair their gut and they've got a really good balance and they've got a really healthy diet, generally speaking, you know, it's clean from agricultural chemical byproducts and synthetic flavors and um, food additives and things like that, then maybe occasionally some properly prepared gluten-containing foods that, you know, were these gluten grains, were they properly prepared, meaning were they soaked, were they sprouted, like these different things, they matter because it adds to the digestibility of that food. And a lot of people will ask, well, are we sensitive to gluten or are we sensitive to what's been done to it? Because the gluten today is very different than the gluten that was in our food decades and decades ago and back in the day, which I talked more about. But, um, you know, now conventionally, um, raised wheat is sprayed with, glyphosate based herbicides as a drying agent for harvest and so like you can't get you can't wash that off and we know that glyphosate can disrupt the shikimate pathway within the bacteria that reside in our gut microbiome so is it the gluten is it the glyphosate is it both I think it's a whole combination collection of it all and it's all very interesting. But here's the thing. Gluten-free, casein-free diets, it's really just the tip of the iceberg because for many of these children, they need a bio-individualized diet like tailored to them far beyond a gluten-free, casein-free diet. If a remarkable amount of biochemical healing and improvement occurs, especially in their gut, then perhaps these children could outgrow um, these sensitivities. They could grow into their teens or grow into adults who occasionally eat gluten and or casein-containing foods in moderation. Who knows? Everyone is different, and we're still learning so much about the intricate impacts of diet, nutrition, and supplementation as a scientific and medical community. Oftentimes, Once gluten and casein are removed, then you can really see the other foods that were triggering them as well. So for example, red apples or tomatoes um, may not have been an obvious issue before, but after being gluten-free, casein-free for some time, you may start to think that they've developed new sensitivities, but it may not necessarily be that the sensitivities are new. It may be that they were hidden masked food sensitivities um, the symptoms beneath the gluten and casein reactions that were occurring so think about it as like you're peeling these layers of the of the onion of inflammation back you know as you're figuring out all these food sensitivities so that's why gluten-free and casein free is a starting point because if your child is eating gluten and your child is eating casein well then as someone with a trained eye in this realm to, to recognize food sensitivities and reactions, it's very hard for me to analyze um, informal assessments and look for other reactions when the blanket of gluten reactions and casein reactions are present. From what I've gathered, though, it seems... Some children are able to tolerate casein um, occasionally, like I've said, in certain forms after working on their gut healing and food intolerances for an extended period of time. For example, goat's milk, camel's milk are easier to digest than cow's milk. And raw cow's milk is more digestible than pasteurized cow's milk because... The enzymes to properly digest casein are still present in the raw, less pasteurized forms. It will depend on the individual um, and and their individual reasons why gluten and casein molecules cause challenge for them initially in the first place, because there are various reasons. Like I've talked a lot about um how they impact the gut and the opioid connection and Um, these types of things, but there are other, um, considerations too, like the fact that they, um, promote the body to release free glutamate, which is a neuro excitatory chemical in the body that, um, you know, it's, it's a problem when it's in excess, So, there are just all these different connections. So, again, it just depends on, like, why gluten and dairy, the casein molecules, why these caused them problems initially and how it was followed up. And it's going to be very bio-individual for each kiddo. So, unfortunately, I know that you don't want to hear this. I can't really um, answer that specifically, that question. But um, it varies. I would be interested to see long-term testimonials and higher-level research done on gluten-free, casein-free diets. From the research that I've personally read and the work that I've done with clients and my own health journey, I would advise families to expect that gluten likely remains, um, needs to remain out of the diet for quite some time um, before expecting that it would be okay to reintroduce it. Going back though to those inevitable whoops moments of diet infractions, parents are generally able to see how these foods are causing their children to react or no longer react um, when that happens. So sometimes it's very obvious that they still aren't able to tolerate it and the diet is worth continuing and there's no question about it because it's just so obvious sometimes the child if they're old enough and able to understand is also able to connect their own food intolerance and sensitivity symptoms and you can teach them you know going back to last episode we talked about we're not demonizing these foods we're teaching them what works for their body and what doesn't work for their body i don't want to be like, too dogmatic or too all or nothing, though, because diet is always very bio individual. I just don't want to give any sort of like false hope. Um, I don't want to give false hope either that after a year or two, that all of a sudden your child is going to be able to eat gluten and casein without an issue. Because, um, unfortunately, that hasn't been the experience that I have seen with, um, just like in my own health experience and the, um, experiences of people that I've seen online and of my clients that I've personally worked with. All of that being said, um, I would still say confidently that all of my clients would tell you that it's been worth it. And in my own experience, I believe that it is worth it because the point Of the diet is not to be able to reintroduce these offending foods as soon as possible. The point is to bring your body into balance and optimize your child's health, wellness, and development. So how long should it take to see results? Now this is gonna be a little bit overlapping from our last episode because I did sort of cover this already but generally speaking most of my clients Um, See beginning results within the first two to three weeks some parents um, May see some progress at about a week or so but it depends if you're starting with gluten or if you're starting with casein or if you're starting with both at the same time and Where where they're starting like what what are their? current foods outside of that and including that and just you know how exactly you make that transition so Again, bio-individual, it's very bio-individual. Keeping in mind that sometimes things get worse before they get better. So if a child has strong, addictive-like cravings to gluten and casein, you may see some very strong-willed behaviors from your child as they initially adjust. So some parents have reported statements along the lines of, After that initial adjustment stage, um, it's like a light turned on, a fog cleared up, a veil was lifted, and it's impeccably rewarding to be a part of helping parents attain such progress and create these changes for their children's health and development. Um, But yeah, you might see it uh, ramp up in some of their cravings and behaviors, For those first couple weeks. Um, Especially if you just like go cold turkey. You may not see as much intensity if you did it gradually. But if you like cold turkey them. um, Yeah. Sometimes you'll you'll see that it's, you know, you're you're, like breaking this biochemical addiction. For lack, lack of a better word here. I recommend my clients and parents who are adopting this um, gluten-free casein-free diet for their child and family to give the complete healthy emphasis on healthy um, gluten-free and casein-free diet and soy-free if possible i give it at least six months with zero whoops moments if there's a whoops moment make a mental note do a mental reset um, of the diet of the timeline from when you started uh, or maybe not just like a, a full reset, but depending on how long your child has been on it and how much gluten or casein they ate and what their reactions were, at least make a note of it and then start again. Gluten and dairy-free diets, casein-free diets, are foundational to most special diets focused on improving the integrity of the gut lining and minimizing food reactions. Is it a magic cure? Is it a fix-all? No. Absolutely not, but it's always worth exploring for these kids with complex picky eating, autism, neurodevelopmental disorders. These children have quite a bit in common from a biochemical, bioindividual perspective, which is what I keep um, coming back to and I hope that that is coming across. So here are some general habits and guidelines that I would like to leave you with for families who um, are transitioning to gluten and casein-free diets. Here are some habits and guidelines to embrace. So it's critical that everyone in the family, um, especially who the people who are feeding the child, it's critical that they're on the same page and supportive at the very least because the best results come from families who are implementing the diet together eating the same family meals. I'll tell you, it is very, very, very difficult to um, to be the only one who is transitioning and who is on board with it. And it, it just it makes it so hard for these families where only one parent is um, dedicated to it. It makes it where you feel like you're going a couple steps forward and then a couple steps back and forward and back and forward and back and I have supported um, families where that's the situation and you know we make progress and and it's fine but it's not as much progress and as much improvement as you would see if both parents and all caregivers were on board and um, you know Uh, following the the gluten-free casein-free diet for that child at least if they're not following it themselves just you know like respecting it for the child during the initial transition consider improving the quality of the family's favorite foods first so we want to add before we remove swap before we remove right so This way you're focused on adding and what they can have before you're removing and focusing on what they cannot have. So you're going from cookies to organic cookies, mac and cheese to organic mac and cheese, chips to organic chips. We're choosing healthier versions that are, are organic when possible and always free of GMOs, agricultural toxicant chemicals, factory farmed animals or their byproducts one swap at a time and we're focusing on proving the quality if it's gluten-free and dairy-free beautiful that's even better but if it's not slowly but surely focus on swapping over to cleaner versions of your family's favorite and slowly but surely continue to remove gluten and dairy as you're swapping for those cleaner versions so over time, you're becoming more mindful and aware um, of where gluten and dairy are in these favorite foods and you're lowering them. And then over time, you can become more and more aware of then lowering refined sugars that might exist too, which will happen somewhat naturally secondary to the steps that we've already talked about. Because then eventually, you want to consider removing all those refined sugars, even organic too, and switching to um, something a little bit more natural like coconut sugars or maple syrup, raw honey, things like that. So when all of this feels sustainable, then you can start expanding to foods that are more minimal ingredients and more whole food focused recipes to increase the nutrient density. So maybe that organic, gluten-free, casein-free mac and cheese is now replaced with one ingredient organic rice flour noodles and the cheese is made from butternut squash or cashews or coconut yogurt and... um, a non-fortified nutritional yeast or something like that. Some children are not going to be able to tolerate nutritional yeast, um, but if you are going to include it in the diet, always, always, always make sure it comes from a um, natural source and that it is non-fortified. The brand that I like is called Sorry Foods, Sari Foods. S A R I. If you're not familiar with nutritional yeast, it's basically like a a cheese substitute, like um, a lot of uh, vegans use it as a cheese substitute, and Sari Foods, I believe, uses a molasses and it's non-fortified, so some brands will fortify it and that means they add folic acid, which is the synthetic form of folate. And the reason this is an issue is because some children um, who have MTHFR, genetic mutations, for example, they're not able to properly process synthetic folic acid. And what happens is that basically this um, synthetic folic acid, it doesn't necessarily get processed, but it like just kind of blocks the, the folate receptors. So then when you're eating dark leafy greens and these other sources of naturally occurring folate, um, it's not being properly absorbed and assimilated sometimes because that synthetic folic acid um, is blocking the receptors. So that's another reason why I um, always stress that, yes, okay, going gluten-free um, is not only important for the gluten, but when you go gluten free you're also um, minimizing a lot of these products that have been fortified um, by with folic acid, so a lot of bread products are um, fortified with synthetic folic acid, so you want to watch for that as well um, but just again, note that like some children they're not going to tolerate even fortified forms of nutritional yeast because um you know there's some debate on this but like if if a kiddo has a yeast issue which is not uncommon for kiddos on the spectrum or kiddos with complex eating or some a lot of these kiddos that I'm talking about sometimes they are um struggling with an imbalance of their gut microbiome and to add um like sometimes they just don't do well with nutritional yeast some do some don't by individual but if you're just starting to transition and your kid's favorite food is macaroni and cheese and this is the way that you transition them away from um, craft macaroni and cheese well then it's a much better option I would say wouldn't you yes yes I know you would (laughs) ask for support when you need it that is my next guideline ask for support when and where you need it. If you need support with your child's complex picky eating, autism symptoms, or neurodevelopmental disorders, and are considering a healthy gluten-free casein-free diet, um, reach out to a professional for some support. Right now, um, at the time of this podcast recording, when it launches um, in March of 2021, I am currently accepting applications for distance coaching. So if this sounds like something that you would be interested in, you can learn more on my website, which is linked in the description of this podcast. And if it looks like distance coaching might be a great fit for you, then you can self-schedule a complimentary discovery call through my website and um, yeah, we'll see if we're a good fit. And I would be honored to support you but if you're not reaching out to me please reach out to someone else that you trust for support throughout this transition someone that really understands it don't just like assume that all nutrition providers are going to understand this diet especially as it relates to this demographic of children last but not least with um, the guidelines I want you to remember to have grace for yourself patience and consistency with the process and with everyone involved especially you and your child your partners your the other caregivers therapists teachers everyone who is in your child's life um who may feed your child like it is going to be a team effort and it's a process Remember that change does not happen overnight. Do not give up. It will be overwhelming, but for most of my families, if not all of the ones that I've worked with, they would say that it really, truly is worth it. And I would share from my own experience and my own health and I'm not, you know, I don't fall into this demographic of children, but just from my own experience dealing with chronic health issues, um, I know that when these molecules are creating inflammation, um, they're very havoc wreaking. And for me, I, you know, I have a lot of people who like aren't familiar with diet, th- this diet and nutrition and stuff, and they almost like pity me when they find out that I can't have gluten and dairy and, like, other foods that I'm still working through sensitivities that I'm healing, um, they kind of are like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm just kind of like, my response to that now is, you know, don't be. Don't be sorry. Like, I feel better than I ever have. (laughs) I still am dealing with food and environmental sensitivities. I'm still healing things. I'm still working on my own healing journey and process. And if you want to hear more about that, go back to the first beginning episodes of this podcast, episodes one and two, and you can learn all about my own health journey. But I will tell you time and time again, it has been worth it. Um, I would rather feel healthy and happy and pain-free than be able to eat gluten and dairy like to me to me it's just like not even not even worth it you know what I mean like I love that I can um, tolerate raw goat cheese and goat milk yogurt and things like that but you know I everything else I mean I just I have my own alternative options if my boyfriend is making a pizza that is a gluten and dairy, regular dairy pizza, I'm just, I'm going to make another one that's gluten free and dairy free. You know what I mean? That's safe for me because again, it's all, it's not about demonizing foods. It's about what works for your body. And yeah, I hope that this has been helpful. If you are looking for more support on this, please visit uh, the other episodes that I've recorded for you prior to this one. And if you go to speakingofhealthandwellness.com or I'll put it down in the description below, I have a free guide. It's called Nourishing Picky Eaters Guide. And I have um, the like beginning strategies and steps that I give to families who are navigating picky eating, and there are also gluten-free, casein-free, soy-free recipes included there and in my recipe as well. And like I said, if you check out my distance coaching options and you feel like it might be a good fit for you, I offer distance coaching complimentary um, calls to see if we would be an appropriate fit, and you can apply and self-schedule through my website, which is linked in the description below. I hope that this has been helpful whether or not I speak with you for a discovery call or not I just hope that this um content is valuable for you and I hope that it's insightful for you and I hope that it is inspiring you in the potential of what can possibly happen through the casein-free dairy-free diet um but yeah just know that it's not it's not easy peasy and it's it sometimes can be difficult and that uh I just want to give people appropriate expectations and um, really help you start to wrap your mind around it. Because it's so hard when you're really trying to consider if you're going to take on this major transition or not for your family. And then you've got, you know, people on the internet saying, it didn't work, It you know. There's no research to support it. La, la, la. Like, I hope that um, you're understanding where some of that mindset comes from and where some of those views come from now after after this episode and the last one and the one before that and all of that. Anyways, we're going to wrap it up. (laughs) I hope that you have a fantastic remainder of your day. Whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, make it a good one. Enjoy your day, your night, whatever time it is. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks again for listening to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. I'm so grateful you've taken the time. For any of the references mentioned in the show, head over to speakingofhealthandwellness.com. If this episode resonated with you or inspired you, it would mean so much to me if you took a moment to subscribe, write a review, share it on social media, or with someone in your life who could really benefit from this information. Your support helps this podcast and the overall message and mission of Speaking of Health and Wellness reach more people. If you share on Instagram, tag me so I can personally thank you for listening. If you're on Facebook, come join our free community group of like-minded parents and professionals. The direct link is in the podcast description. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks again so much and take care.